everyone, welcome to Office Hours with Cloud Posse, your weekly dose of insider DevOps trends, AWS news, and Terraform insights, all sourced from our SweetOps community, plus a live Q&A that you can't find anywhere else. It's January 10th, 2024. My name's Eric Osterman, and I'll be your host. Real quick, I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse. We are a DevOps accelerator for startups that helps teams who are overwhelmed with AWS. We do this by leveraging our over 200 Terraform modules that have been battle tested and downloaded over 100 million times. No matter where you find yourself on this journey, we're here to help your startup launch better products faster so you can free up your bandwidth for innovation and nail your value delivery every time. And if you or your team has been banging your head against the wall with underperforming infrastructure, just head over to cloudposse.com quiz, answer a few quick questions, and we'll chart a roadmap for success free. First, now, how can you maximize today's session? First off, our format is very informal. Engage as much as you'd like, ask questions. And if you're curious about any of our open source tools or modules, go for it. For those on the recording, we host these calls live. So don't miss out. Join us live by going to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, cloudposse.com slash office hours. Now, I do have one ask. If you find any portion of today's office hours valuable, please share it with your team. Just head over to youtube.com slash cloudposse or send us a short testimonial about the value you're getting in Slack or leave a comment on the YouTube video. Just go to slack.cloudposse.com to sign up. Remember, we're not just simply creating content here. We are building a community and we can't do that without your help. So with that, let's get into announcements. Here's what we have on the docket for today. First is, um, uh, you know, we talk a lot about Atmos. Atmos is a tool that we've written here at Cloud Posse. Uh, it's a workflow automation tool, configuration management tool. Uh, we use it heavily together with Terraform, uh, Helm file, and other uh, tools as well. We have uh, integrations with things like GitHub Actions, and we've just uh, taken another pass at updating these docs and improve them. So if you are using Atmos and you want to use it with GitHub Actions, uh, now is a good time to check that out again. Uh, we talk about how to implement Terraform plans in GitHub Actions uh, using our strategy, Terraform applies, and drift detection. So all of that you get out of the box for free if you use Atmos and GitHub Actions. Next uh, announcement is also Atmos related. Um, so one of the interesting things about Atmos is it's um, evolved a lot over the past few years and it's become you know, its own framework, if you will, uh, with its own conventions and uh, design patterns. There is no one way to use Atmos and how you use it will depend on some of the circumstances you have, what you're trying to optimize. If you're trying to optimize for super dry configuration, if you're trying to optimize for controls that enable certain teams only to make changes to configuration with approval, for example, leveraging code owners and config files, whether you're dynamically generating YAML configurations, like you're, you're, let's say you're an enterprise SaaS product and every time a customer signs up, you need to spin up a new environment, a dedicated uh, environment for them. All these different use cases have different 
design patterns that will work better or worse for them. So we've documented now, uh, we've taken a first pass at a lot of the design patterns we've been using over the years, and we're gonna continue to add to this library of design patterns as well. Um, we go about uh, describing the motivation of why we're publishing all of these and what is a design patterns and why you should care. Um, from my perspective, what's nice about it is it puts a, a, a name to the concept that labels it. So it's something we can talk about uh, conceptually. It's so we can converge on a common set of patterns as a community using Atmos. So configurations aren't always entirely bespoke. And um, yeah, just raise the bar. So uh, we are the creators of Atmos. So obviously we, we know it better than anyone, um, but we've also learned a lot from some of our customers uh, pushing the envelope on how it can be used. And some of those uh, lessons learned are in here as well. All right. Uh, any questions on Atmos before we move on to the rest of the announcements? All right. Uh, small one here is, it's, I mean, it was announced some time ago, Aurora V1 uh, serverless would be shutting down. Um, the sad thing was this was the first foray into like a managed service by AWS that could scale down to zero. Problem is it never really worked that well. Uh, they also released V2 of um, Aurora Serverless that totally uh, was a re-implementation, basically, and that does not include the scaling down to zero portion. So anyways, V1 is shutting down. It's uh, pretty unusual that Amazon sunset services, but this is one example of that. And again, they're not setting, sunsetting serverless Aurora. They're sunsetting V1 of serverless Aurora. Next uh, is something that was shared with me. It was an interesting uh, map of all projects on GitHub. And you can zoom in here and search for uh, projects like Cloud Posse, Atmos. Yeah, that was working. Cloud Posse, Atmos, there we go. And where it exists in the you know landscape of everything uh, on GitHub, I, I I'm not sure I so I agree with the uh, classification of being in PowerShell land, but whatever, still kind of cool uh, visual representation of the graph. I think I think we can agree that we're probably in Cloudera, <laughs> and maybe. GitHub Nation or whatever there, but uh, your point of the higher uh, or of the deeper one of being in PowerShell doesn't make any sense. Yeah, does not. I don't. I wonder how they arrived at that. I'm just surprised there's so many islands and no continents of sorts. Gotcha. All right, I guess what it begs the question: What is the in this kind of a, a topographical map? What is the definition of a continent versus an island? <laughs> Where's the line drawn? Arguably, these are mostly continents consisting of lots of countries. Yeah, I was just about to say Australia is both, right? 
Yeah. Oh, this isn't this isn't actual like a geographic map. This is like all made like things that they made up. Well, I know, but he's saying I guess Australia is a continent and a country uh, in this case. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, I, I misunderstood. I thought you were saying the thing that is Australia on this map. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't think there is an Australia though on the map, is there? Or... No, no, that's what I was saying. None of these are actually yeah. real, like geographic yeah. places. This is a, uh, you know, uh, a land of make believe from GitHub, uh, from GitHub packages. Yeah. Do they have a a key or like a, um, I don't know, a glossary for these different, their different names that they've come up with? Because when I saw Cloudera, I thought, oh, Cloudera, the company publishes like yeah, a right? ton of open source. Um, but now I get it but it's kind of confusing. They made some like very interesting naming choices that they basically grouped these into. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, and then you have like view, whatever that is like Viewtopia over there, which I assume is everything around like the view, like react framework uh, or react um, competitor framework, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That project. All right. And uh, this seemed like a pretty funny, or I mean, funny or funny. It depends how you're affected by it. But how can something like this have only come out now? Um, Matt, can you talk oh, about this one some more? Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, it needs a little bit of history, so I'll try to do it quickly. But going back, there was a developer, I forget the guy's name, who published uh, the kick package um, to NPM, KIK. Uh, he got a, a, a trademark dispute from the messenger kick, and they asked him to remove his package. He, he actually predated them, um, but NPM nonetheless... Um, sided with Kick the company and asked them to relinquish the Kick namespace in NPM to Kick the company. He got really pissed off and he unpublished all of his all of his open source packages that he had published to NPM, um, which included Leftpad. Um, and there were like millions of packages that were relying on Leftpad, and he essentially broke the internet um, by doing that. Uh, so subsequent to that, NPM put in a put in a um, a policy that said you can unpublish a package if you're a package owner um, only if uh, only if there aren't like I, they give you some finite time frame of of that you can unpublish it for plus the the extra caveat that it has to um, it has to have no dependencies on that specific version of the package for you to be able to, to unpublish it. So that's how the, the NPM rule came to be. Then um, these guys, uh, a couple of guys were doing like a uh, an experiment just to work on some things. Um, and they, want, they created this everything package, which basically uh, installs every package from NPM. They just did it as like a, uh, as an experiment with no malintent in you know in in place, um, they, these guys are actually pretty well known in in the developer community, and they're not bad actors, um, you know, or anything like that. So 
they npm had a um had a limitation of like 800 package dependencies in your package dependency so they built this whole process to get a list of all the packages that exist chunk them into submodules and then um and then create all these submodules like you know a to a to c you know d to f or whatever and then they basically created these submodules that um that uh each would um would publish a significant or would basically uh, rely on some number of package sub packages and then everything the everything package then points at all of those sub packages to uh which there are eight, fewer than 800 of them to get like every single npm package like listed in its scope but it has the unattended effect oh sorry in those sub packages instead of pinning to a module they're pinning to the splat operator which is um, basically just <laughs> saying every you know every every, every version. version of the package, um, and then what they're doing is because they then published this, they then stopped effectively stopped any npm maintainer from ever being able to unpublish one of their npm modules, even if there are no dependencies on it, because this automatically depends on on every version that's ever published. So I know that was a long explanation, but hopefully that, that made sense. Um, so they unintentionally broke unpublishing by NPM. And then they've contacted NPM and actually said, this was a silly experiment. Can you just delete our everything package so everyone can go back to normal? And NPM basically hasn't fixed it. So oh, wow. um, so they, they deleted the everything package from, from GitHub. Um, but it's still published to NPM. So I don't know what at this point can be done other than NPM fixing this. And for some reason, NPM isn't fixing this. Um, so while it was an experiment that went awry by these developers, um, the blame from this point forward squarely falls on the NPM uh, core maintainers to fix this problem. So. I assume yeah. they haven't fixed it because some uh, then uh, some other kiddies is just going to come back and do the same thing over again until they fix the fundamental uh, yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's got to be some. I think they thought they were doing that by limiting limiting npm you know or package.json to a maximum uh, of eight eight hundred yeah. dependencies or whatever it was. But then then these guys created a chunking solution basically to make yeah. that you know, to make that not happen. Um, and then, you know, so to your point, someone will exploit this again. Um, yeah. I, I don't know what the answer is, honestly, because you don't want the left pad situation to happen again. Like all these people yeah. like depend on a particular package, but you also want to give package maintainers the ability to unpublish things yeah. that they choose that they need to unpublish, like if there's a major security flaw or they accidentally publish something as a version that it shouldn't have been published as or, you know, something along yeah. those lines. So I, I don't really know what the answer is, but something needs to be done to be able to, like, fix this. I, yeah. Uh, to me, it feels like it should be something along the lines of uh, PageRank uh, algorithm, like, you know, the number of things that... That has to be somehow a factor, the number of things that depend on it. Yeah. 
And they have that in the registry, actually. So okay. when you publish a new package, it, it determines an, a, a graph for your for your package, and they actually know how many mm -hmm. packages you depend on and how many packages depend on you uh, immediately. So that could easily be done if you're if you're deemed important or over some certain level or whatever. You should yeah. you, know, you should be able to do that. But and presumably they have this, some spam packages oh, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, what I was going to say is this. Uh, this, you know, this brings up the important point of don't blindly, don't blindly trust your supply chain. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm curious, though, is like going back to your backstory, which I vaguely recall, um, I didn't know that it was related to this trademark uh, dispute. Yeah. The wouldn't, though like this whole thing that they implemented to prevent this from happening though, would have prevented them from doing the thing that ended up causing this. What I mean is this kick namespace uh, was, you know, arguably trademarked um, and this package was it, in that namespace. It wasn't. I mean, oh. the guy who actually created kick created it before the company ever existed. Right. Well, yeah, one can argue the merit of the trademark or whatever, which yeah. is not this point. This is more like, okay, so suppose they had this system in place before that, then they wouldn't have been able to do the thing they wanted him to do because all of those packages depended on it with left pad. Right. Well, so it wasn't in the kick namespace. It was some other, like they actually had the, the package called kick. Okay. Like, and that was basically, so it was just like, you know, NPM install kick. Okay. And when yeah. you did that, it installed his package, not the kick messenger SDK right. or whatever they wanted to do. Right. So, so the, he, you can transfer ownership of a namespace to someone else. Right. So in that case, he would have been able to do what he wanted to do, but he just, did, he got miffed that he predated kick the messenger and, um, yet NPM basically told them to give up his name and he yeah. said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so his, his like hissy fit of like not, uh, disagreeing with their decision was I'll just pull everything I've ever published to NPM, which included left pad, but it wasn't in the same namespace or anything else. It was, oh, okay. it was so someone it, else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I understand. I understand yeah. the nuance yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. So Kick so, and his left pad were perhaps in the same namespace, but there wasn't the namespace under contention. It was Kick. Uh, right. Project, it was the actual uh, pad. And it wasn't that the word, the internet depended on Kick. They, they depended on left pad. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, and like, I mean, it was like, I forget the number, but it was like hundreds of thousands of packages or something like that had yeah. either a, a dependency or transient dependency on on that one little left pad thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's that classic uh meme pick, right? The open source projects all depend on on Yeah, the one that's not maintained by some developer, yeah. you know, since two thousand yeah. yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anybody have something else to add to this before we move on? And uh, let's see, the Zoom chat had something here. 
you, know, you must allow maintainers oh. to maintain their products as they see fit. If you require supply chain stability, then you should fork the code and mirror the NPM package into a private repo. Yeah. So for what it's worth, the end to that saga was the only time that NPM has ever done this. Um, they went back to a they went back to a uh, a backup and actually restored the package to unbreak all of those <laughs> um, all of those things and basically yeah. didn't allow him to delete it, which again could be argued that they don't have the right because it's his intellectual property. He can do what he sees fit to. But it was but an MIT license, then they can have a copy, I believe. Probably a copy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember what the license was on it, but it's as far as I know, it's the only time NPM has ever done that. So, um, yeah, and it took them a while to find it from a backup or whatever, but it was the only <laughs> way to to like literally unbreak the uh, unbreak the internet. So, <laughs> interesting indeed. Well, that was that story? Uh, in other news, uh, OpenTofu has officially released uh, 1.6.0. Um, so that's exciting news. I know it's taken a while to get to this point, but I suspect subsequent releases will go faster and faster and faster as the team is uh, getting up to speed on the code base. And a lot of effort had gone into, of course, making it uh, safe to release and not violating any trademarks and patents or whatever. Um, restrictions of the BSL. Uh, I read somewhere else that uh, there is talks on how to support interpolation and backend configs in OpenTOFU, which would be really exciting, as well as parameters in module source definitions so those can be parameterized. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, there's actually a couple of issues, I think. There's an issue for each one of those things, uh, like in the yeah. actual issues. Yeah. Next announcement was something trending on Reddit, Gaia. Uh, it is a front end for uh, Terraform, uh, invoking modules and uh, deploying them. Don't know how I feel about these things. They always demo well, but is it really the way you want to work? Um, and often these types of things are orthogonal to doing GitOps. Like unless this is literally, you know, doing a uh, GitOps style operation behind the scenes to manage the state, and I haven't looked deeper into it, then you know it's not really that interesting to me. So that is Gaia. Yeah, I think I think it. Um, I, I only slightly more deeply kicked the tires than you did, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at it. And from what my take was, is that it writes all the operations that you that you perform through the GUI into a MongoDB um, repo, um, and then it actually has a history of like all the things that have been done, and you can I think you can revert like. Okay. From it and kind of back out and all that kind of thing. <laughs> Matt Gowie says, Mitchell Hashimoto. All right. Who was that? Big? Oh, oh, sorry. I thought it was related to what Matt was just saying. Uh, never mind. No. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, unrelated, uh, Alex uh, was posting in the Zoom chat, who's the big boss that left Hashi, apparently not related to the contentious license change. Yeah, and that was one of the co-founders, Mitchell Hashimoto, and it really wasn't related to the license change, but probably um, was, uh, if you look back at all the announcements and all the changes that have been going on in HashiCorp, this had been planned for a long time. Um, I can't help but think that, you know, Mitchell probably wasn't uh, happy with the trajectory of some things, but I have no knowledge of that. That's just me projecting my own uh, feelings. Yeah. Company. I, I can say um, I, my, my interpretation also, like with the asterisk, you know, <laughs> I don't want to speak for Mitchell, is that I don't believe that being part of a gigantic um public company with all the governance and money raising and strategic directions of becoming a large pressured company to meet quarterly earnings and all that kind of thing was in alignment with what he found interesting um, at the, at the um, having met him several times and talked to him several times, like at his core, he's a, he, he's a coding tech nerd um, and, but you know, a really smart kind of guy on top of that. And I think, he found a way to gradually exit um, without doing significant damage to the thing that provides the vast majority of his net, his personal net worth, um, which he did the smart way. So I think that's my, you know, my take on the whole thing. That sounds exactly what I think it is too. So, yeah. 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 We we announced earlier that also Mitchell Hashimoto was, uh, you know, now that he's retired from HashiCorp, uh, well, working more on his other projects, one of his first things uh, on his plate was a house cleaning, um, and he's abandoning or orphaning a bunch of open source projects, and he basically said, I have quit Golang, so I'm not writing any more Go projects. So going back to that supply chain thing, he, yeah. you know. He deleted LeftPad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, Mitchell H slash Homder is used in a ton of projects. So, um, a ton of Go projects. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see if he just leaves it there or someone takes it over or forks it somewhere and people start moving away from that. So, yeah, I haven't followed. It's just like a way to, it, that's, that it's, it's really simple. It's a, it's like a, um, a platform agnostic way to locate like the user's home directory. Basically it's like a, a really dumb, like simple little project, but tons of people use it kind of like left path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dumb, but necessary. Those types of things are actually annoying when you're dealing with windows and yeah, all the different yeah, yeah. Unix distributions. Exactly. Yeah, the other thing about him was that he was jumping into that weird language that I hadn't heard of for like a couple of years. Zig, it might be botching the name. Um, no, nope, I don't know. Correct. We already talked about it. Yeah, but interesting move. Yeah. So the next uh, one was this here was um, presumably somebody's side project here. Um, a convenient way of uh, setting up port forwarding, uh, you know, kubectl proxy uh, for your uh, apps running in Kubernetes. So it's a tray app, so you can quickly enable those to get to those services. One of the biggest annoyances for me is 
that there hasn't become a more native way in Kubernetes to do this. Uh, and if you do deploy things like inside your clusters, such as Argo CD or uh, even the Kubernetes dashboard uh, itself, there was no mainstream way, in my opinion, for exposing that securely. Uh, and you know, the proxy, kubectl proxy was the solution, but to me, that was never the solution. So I guess this is a Band-Aid for that solution. Uh, next two, I haven't read at all. Matt, uh, you were the one that shared these with me. Um, were you able to add a little bit more context to either of these? Yeah, it, so this one looks like they added um, they added the ability to monitor um, monitor through CloudWatch uh, connections that are traversing like Direct Connect, um, you know, attachments and VPNs like to your back across to your like um, you know off cloud you know on prem data center, uh, etc. So you can get sort of end to end views of um, how things are looking across. You know, when you have dedicated connections or across, you know, transit gateway to transit gateway connections and a bunch of other things. Um, so it's basically just expanding the monitoring capability of CloudWatch um, in this case. Okay. Yeah, and I guess that's what they call it, right? Hi hybrid connectivity. When you're, when when all of your network isn't contained within the AWS cloud, it might be um, somewhere else on. Um, you know, either in your own data center or in another cloud, presumably as well. Yeah. And the other announcement was uh, improvements to AWS config. Yeah. So before you didn't have a choice um, in AWS, if you have AWS config enabled, um, you would get you would get a um, a recorded configuration change for everything that changed in your account, um, no matter what. Uh, people who have highly dynamic workloads uh, really complained that they're constantly scaling things up and down like throughout the day. And they didn't want to see every little change, just kind of like periodic snapshots of where they were at. So this gives the, um, this gives the ability now to set it to be um, to be periodic, so basically to only take a snapshot if, like, let's say you could you could do it every day at midnight, and then it will only it will only record deltas from yesterday at midnight to today at midnight, not necessarily all the resources that scaled up and down within the day, um, as kind of the the item to 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 uh, record within AWS config at that point. So, what I'm confused about. Uh is I thought AWS config worked through evaluations and you configure the number of evaluations you want. Uh, so I thought it already worked this way, but apparently obviously it didn't. Mm -mm. Um, no, so, okay. it, it basically the way it works, I believe um, under the hood is it hooks um, event bridge and it looks at all the event bridge events for creation and um, you know, creation and deletion of certain resources that it's tracking. And then it um, it it basically like evaluates all those changes. And then you're right, that's how you're charged. It's based on how many 
how many config rules are evaluated, but but yeah. that doesn't mean that you choose how often the configuration items underneath it are. That's what we're talking about here for configuration items. So yeah. rules are configure are, are written against configuration items. Configuration items are the current state of of a an AWS resource basically. So like I have an EC2 instance that has this IP address with with these NICs attached and has these security groups attached and has all those things. like that's all a configuration item. And what this is allowing you to do is choose how often you evaluate what your total population of configuration items actually looks like, since many of them are just ephemeral and they're only lasting for short periods of time. Like while videos being transcoded, you spin up an EC2 instance and then kill it off. Um, and it only lasted for, you know, 30 minutes while that happened. Um, there's no reason to record that because you don't really care that that existed for 30 minutes to kind of do your overall like capacity planning and understanding like, what your total population looks like. That's kind of the argument of why they implemented this. And just to complete my understanding, uh, so this thing, so these events going over the event bridge, for example, each one of those would trigger a rule evaluation. If you have, if you have configuration item recording turned on in in that particular region where those things are created, yeah. yes. Okay. So now, and, so now that the, of that in real time, now that can be periodic. Yeah, so the event bridge, like the event bridge notifications happen no matter what. That's just a built, that's just a an AWS built-in thing. Yeah. Um so they always for every every operation that, that occurs in your account, basically, they send messages across the event bridge. Um what I'm presuming is happening is something under the hood is um is like only taking like the you know it's it's a queue or whatever and doing something and then it only evaluates does the rule evaluations like at or the the evaluation to to determine whether or not there's a configuration change to a ci on that periodic basis but i don't know how it's actually implemented i'm just guessing on that one yeah i understand yeah all right all right next uh thing on my list was Something that we missed last week in announcements that, that caught my attention is EKS now surfacing cluster health status details. Um, seems like a nice thing to have. I wonder if this uh, shows up then in the customer health dashboard. Yeah, it shows up on the EKS dashboard. I I definitely saw that. Um, I don't know if it if it filters up to that total. Yeah, the, the higher level one. And lastly, Michael, uh, do you want to talk about this one you shared? Yeah, indeed. Um, really, I guess the interest that I had in this one was the fact that it uh, affects GitHub uh, Actions runners, uh, self-hosted runners particularly. So if you're using the um, free runners or public runners where um, every time your workflow runs, GitHub spins up a runner for you, your job runs, and then it goes away. You really don't have to worry about this type of attack as much. But if you do have self-hosted runners, it gets a little bit more interesting because what people can do is, uh, I guess, if if the workflow logs are exposed, and I think you just have to be logged in to view logs of um, public repositories, 
Oh, and I guess the number one thing is never put a self-hosted runner on a public repository. That's the number one way to just kind of, you know, work around this. Um, but if you have a public repository uh, where someone can see the logs and observe the the jobs that are running and the names of the runners, then they can determine if a runner is being reused. And then with the kind of the attack vector is they'll submit a pull request and it could be like this article goes on, they could just do like a documentation, like fix a typo or something like that. And then you accept the pull requests. And if your rules are such that anybody who gets accepted is now a contributor and their future contributions are auto-approved, then they have a vector to add their own malicious code at that point. So mm. essentially they can create a workflow that runs on your persistent runner and then they can add their own persistence for themselves. So basically open up a backdoor uh, hmm. modify yeah. your workflows to run some other programs um, or whatever the case is for, for their own, um, you know, malicious or unintended use. And the, the example, the crazy example that the researchers found was they had access to the, the repository where GitHub builds their images for runners. So if they had access to that repository and they injected some malicious code, they could even they could have even affected the uh, mm. temporary runners that everybody else is using, and they could have put something funky and malicious in that particular code. So that that was um really kind of like the craziest part to me. Um, and then like the little bit of subtext here, uh, I guess even more interesting if you're interested in bug bounties, uh, the researchers they got the bug bounty from GitHub. It looks like yeah, right there at twenty k. But then they they also found other companies that had the same sort of attack vector in place and also submitted bug bounties to those companies and they're getting cash from those guys as well. So, I mean, total, totally legit. You know, there's nothing malicious about their approach. It's probably a good thing that they found this first and, and you know, did it the proper way as opposed to some other, you know, um, more malicious entity might've found it and, and did something even more crazy with it. But um, I guess the, the main lesson learned here is to... Um, uh, if you do have self-hosted runners, um, I would say, number one, make those repositories public or rather private, the ones that use them. And then also um, don't have auto-approved pull requests or, you know, don't auto-approve pull requests from folks that you don't trust, you know, or aren't part of your company, your team or whatever the case is. Yeah, I agree with those. Uh, or disable, like depending on the nature of the repository, uh, you might not need to accept pull requests. Uh, in that case, just disable the pull requests. But yeah. uh, the recommendation that you said, just disable pull request runs on um, you know non-org members by default, that's a good one to enable. Uh, it, it's tedious for your uh, reviewers, but it's necessary from a yeah. security perspective. Yeah. I think GitHub actually... Um now made that the default oh really yeah that it won't run pull requests from um it won't run actions on pull requests from forks yeah it eliminates the whole class of problems just yeah. lack of all right uh that's all i think i had for today well, that i wanted to bring up on that on that uh that page you were just on as you were scrolling, I, I just had to make a note because I saw um, I saw that there's a giant data breach from Mr. Cooper, who is a is like one of the nation's largest um, largest mortgage processors, and they happen to pro uh, process my 
mortgage and I had no idea. I didn't, I hadn't seen this before. So now I need to go look at that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So if anybody wants to know yeah. about uh, Matt's uh, mortgage information now, yeah, the there you go. It's not that exciting. <laughs> if anyone wants to pay it off, I'll send you the details directly. <laughs> <laughs> but it says 14.7 million customers were affected. <laughs> That's yeah. a lot. I, um, I, there's just so many of these breaches. Uh, I effectively, I, it's just like notif spam notifications in my inbox now. I almost don't pay attention to it, even if it affects me. Uh, yeah, too I, I, I'm pretty good about it. I don't think they actually notified me, even though they said they started notifying people on December 15th. So hmm. um, I'm going to go search my email again. So there was also something over the holidays. Um, affecting every major password manager like one password and last pass and those about it um like malicious websites could trick it into submitting passwords or something hmm. i missed that weird not showing up here I hadn't heard about that one. For what it's worth, one password is pretty good detection. Like if if you're submitting your password to something that doesn't match the URL of the of the like the account that you have defined inside of one password, it will actually warn you and say, like, are yeah. you sure you want to do this? And you know, that kind of thing. So Yeah, this was the one I was thinking of. I didn't look too closely. What are the three others? Just want to know if I'm on there. <laughs> Dash lane and last pass. Dash lane and last pass. And three What's this and three others? Oh, yeah. Oh, Keep... over there. Sorry. Yeah. Is Bitbucket in there? Or not? Yeah. Bitbucket, they have a password? Oh, not Bitbucket. What am I talking about? Um, Bitkeeper. Bitkeeper, is that what it's called? Bit, Bitlocker. Oh, Bitlocker, is that what it's called? Bitwarden. Bitlocker also has Oh, no, that's the, the encryption thing on Microsoft. You're yeah, right. Warden doesn't <laughs> mention the article for what it's worth. Yeah. Oh, I'm on the wrong page somehow. Uh, hold on, let me. Oh, they have all your passwords now, Eric. Ah. <laughs> Bit. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. I'll put it in the zoom. Did you see chat. the size? By the way, did you see the size of that banner that came up? <laughs> I know, that was really annoying. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it's fixed, position fixed. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was an internal joke, guys. Yes, we were joking about the size of banners. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, any questions? We can. Any uh, additional announcements we missed that caught your attention? Otherwise, we'll get into the Q and A. All right. 
Any um, any questions we can get answered today? I have something kind of unrelated, but I'm uh, really curious about 3D printers now that they've kind of come down in pricing and things. If anyone's been using those or have one and or make any recommendations on where I should look, I don't know where to begin because there's just too many. Uh, I've used my friend's bamboo one mm -hmm. a few times. That one looks um, really print nice. up print up some stuff for my uh, my aquarium, mm. <laughs> like mounting brackets and a bunch of other things and i've been pretty impressed with how it works yeah that was one that was uh, considering all right any questions totally open-ended can be on anything career advice And if not, we can always end a little bit early today. I was just thinking back to our discussion about supply chains. And this is more just kind of an anecdote um, where even I was infected, not infected, but affected by an internal uh, supply chain. We do have an artifactory that I work with, and um, but it's only accessible off of uh, through VPN. And I thought I had cached everything. So I was working with an application trying to build it into a container image. And I could run the application locally because when I had pulled everything initially, everything was fine. But when I went to build the image off of VPN, um, I thought I had everything cached properly, but I guess apparently during the build, there was something that would reach out to the uh, internal artifactory to pull down, mm -hmm. you know, some jar file or whatever. And um, it wasn't there. So when, when I ran the image, it would fail immediately because this uh, package wasn't, present. And the two day debug spiral for me was, you know, it works locally, you know, when I run it, everything's fine. But then when I run the image, build the image clean, um, it fails. Um, and then I just so happened to uh, sort of reset everything. And I got on VPN and I went through the whole workflow of running the app, or, you know, running the app, pulling down all the packages and then building the uh, image while I was on VPN and it worked. So um, I don't know, just another little supply chain. It's like an internal supply chain thing. Um, I just didn't have access to it from my um, build pro local build process, not a, um, I, and I guess that's the difference. I was building it locally as opposed to building it in CICD, a hosted CICD yeah. where all the access would have been in place. Um, so if anybody ever comes across that issue, um, I don't know, one more point to, to consider, just get back on VPN. Makes sense. Hey, um, I asked a question months ago that I, you know, then unfortunately was not around and to see if it, if it ever popped up. Um, but, uh, AWS, um, RDS, IEM database authentication, um, what are folks experience with it? Uh, is it worth it? Uh, we're just sending somebody to investigate it in the coming weeks and, um, trying to just avoid the hey, shared passwords for Postgres access uh, problem and having giving each individual person their own, um, you know, IAM authentication in uh, and wondering, yeah, how do people 
deal with that? What's the, the, is there another solution we should look at to compare it against? Um, is there anything open source, that sort of discussion? Yeah, happy to answer this, but Matt, do you want to take a first pass? Um, yeah, I don't really have much insight on it other than I've kicked the tires and used it a bit. Um, but I don't think I have any deep experience that I can really give anything insightful on so, it. So uh, this was one that was in our design decisions for a long time. Um, yeah. And uh, what are, what what the uh, recommendation, at least at the time, was that uh, IAM authentication was really only intended for human users of the database uh, due to its rate limits. Uh, that must have been its uh, design intention. So make sure that that's the consideration. Uh, for customers that ultimately want to do that, though, that's only a drop in the bucket for the things that need that functionality of temporary rotated credentials and linking that to IAM. So uh, those uh, customers tend to be enterprise customers, and then they rely instead on one of the many alternative uh, tools, like uh, enterprise offerings. Um, I am drawing a blank. Strong uh, DM. You're talking about like, DM. using something exactly. like that. Strong DM was what man. I was going to say yep. next. So then that's where Strong DM comes in, uh, or alternative. Yeah. We're using TailScale with this client, where yeah. I guess that's there's the differentiator it's like they're not always in the middle and like you know it's it's network access not actual like they, they don't know the protocol and can't get in the middle of authentication like that with with what we've picked for you know getting into the network um but that's that's good to know that you would only use it on the um the user side of the equation because of rate limits um i'll definitely and then you look you know, at the my examples team. out there on how to do it and you realize, yeah, I guess that's true because the programmatic examples to do it are few and far between. And, and you have to make sure like the la you don't want to, you don't want to fix one problem and introduce another. So now like one of the most common, actually one of the most common uh, causes of website outages is uh, you uh, max out connections, for example, on the database uh, because you scaled up your web app because your web app, because the database slow, slowed down and you're, uh, you, you, your auto scaling then scaled up and then you uh, create a swarm on top of your database and make it worse. Yeah, This just exasperates that problem because now you are creating more of these logins uh, uh, for the processes. So, you know, how you implement that um, in a scalable manner, uh, you want to make sure that, you know, each pod, for example, is not doing that um, would be my assertion there. Uh, and if each pod is not doing that, then you have these credentials and they need to be stored somewhere. And how are you doing that safely? Um, I think it'd be interesting if if this was implemented, um, I presumably this would be something easier. I, and I'm just, this is armchair banter right now. If this was implemented um, in Kubernetes uh, so that there was a, a process that just updated the shared secret where the database and the pods uh, reloaded with that, I could see it working. Just keep in mind that uh, you have to have uh, the simultaneous, uh, ver I, I don't know if it works with simultaneous versions, uh, uh, credentials working, because there's some period of time you have both uh, processes on the old credentials. One pod coming up on cloud. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, oh, I guess from can... the application side, it makes, 
it sounds like it's, you know, already hearing you talk about it, it does sound, you know, probably more complicated than the can of worms that it's worth opening. Um, For the customers yeah, I that think. wanted it, they were on rails and I could only find like uh, some old stack overflow post or something on it that was five years old. Uh, maybe Okay. there's. Interesting. Yeah. For, for what it's worth, I was just looking and it looks like there's, there were a, kind of a flurry of new things talking about it, maybe about four to six months ago. So they might've updated some stuff in, That could in be. there, um, including a Rails example. I actually just was looking at, and Yeah. basically you can use, you can use IAM credentials to exchange for an auth token that you can then use to authenticate to the database like that way. Um, and by calling an API, and it looks like that that's the way that a lot of people are doing it. And if you're using it in Kubernetes, then presumably you could use the new pod identities um, to give them an IAM role so that those pods have the ability to call that API to exchange it for a token and then um, and then be able to use that token to off the database. That makes sense. Um, do you mind sharing that, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just, uh, I have to hit back in my browser a couple of times and then I'll, I'll find it for you. <laughs> Anyway, that's uh, the only one I have. Yeah, here it is. I'll, I'll post it here in the Zoom chat. This is the, uh, that was the article I was just reading about how to do it. And it looks like that was written in August. Hmm. It shows a Rails example of doing it. Yeah, and it looks like there's, uh, there's an AWS authentication plugin like to Postgres in this case, it looks like. So, um, yeah, so I guess it's worth maybe reading this and understanding like how the whole thing ties together. Cool. This is great. Appreciate that. And thanks Yeah, no for problem. sharing y'all's experience. Just Oh, curious. there's actually a node, there's a node example in here too of how to do it. So it looks like you can use it with both. Oh yeah, and there's a package now, ADS, uh, AWS slash RDS, AWS SDK slash RDS signer. And they have a package where you basically using your IAM credentials, you say the region, the host name, the port and the username you want to do it with, you call get auth token, and then it gives you back. Um, and you can, you, you can specify how long those auth tokens are good for. And then you basically get an authorization token back and, and do that. So that would be, I guess, the programmatic way to, to access the database. And then, um, and then you could use the regular IAM authentication wire for users to, uh, to access it. So it looks like maybe they removed some of those rate limits or something. So do some research on that. But I think the key thing is um, but the, what I highlight here on the screen. And I'm, if you're using like a, a you know Java process and this is handled centrally and all the process, all the threads can reuse those credentials uh, for some period of time and you know that that might work. But if literally every pod has to is short lived or you have lots of pods coming online, 
we're talking large clusters. So, you know, from the majority of small, you know, smaller startups, this isn't a non-issue uh, until the day it becomes an issue. And then it's a hard thing to work around. But isn't that, that that's why RDS you, proxy exists, right? So basically RDS proxy does connection pooling um, right. from all of those things. That's why you're, you're supposed to mm. insert RDS proxy in between your app and the actual database okay, so, itself. If you use IAM authentication with RDS proxy, then you yeah. don't have. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. yeah. They say consider using connection pool in your applications, blah, blah, blah. Um, that makes sense. Um, and I guess, yeah, when you're at that scale, um, having RDS proxy in the mix is also useful. Regardless. Uh, for other. Yeah, it's for yeah. just useful in general. Right. And that's also 200 authentication requests per second, right? Oh, no, new connections, new connections per second. So, sorry. Hmm. Hey, okay. Uh, we got another question uh, from Tim. I don't know if we had everyone else on the call uh, that day. Uh, I do remember your question, and I still stand by my answer, so I don't understand why that's not working for you. So Tim asked a question um, about a month back. The issue was, you know, how do you resolve to the private IP of the load balancer when you're inside of AWS? And how do you get the public one when you're outside? Uh, Tim keeps on getting the public address return for the ALB. Uh, and he said he tried a few things and it didn't work. I think the recommendations were one, make sure you're using the AWS resolver Two, make sure you're not for some reason um, exiting the VPC uh, and making that DNS query. Um, so you're resolving that from the EC2 instance within the VPC direct to the AWS resolver, and then you should get that. Uh, I think an interesting test would be just to spin up a test EC2 instance um, and, and see if you can reproduce the problem based on a public uh, AWS AMI, not, nothing custom, et cetera and possibly do it in a default AWS VPC. So there's nothing about your VPC configuration that is preventing that from working. So uh, like the internal uh, DNS resolver is, I think someone else said it's like dot two or dot three or something like that it's on your- dot two on your subnet. Yeah, so whatever your subnet is of your EC2, and, yeah, exactly, 192.168.1.2 would be that. So uh, in this case, it would be like what Alex says, but instead of Nike, you would uh, stick in the uh, this the address of your AWS load balancer there, and running that command should result in um, the private IP address of uh, your load balancer. Yeah, and then if you use like a public DNS uh, resolver like uh, Cloudflare's 8.8.8, .8 .8 .8, or is that Google's, I forget, 8.8.8.8, then um, you should get the public one. Yeah, I think that's Google. I think 4.4.4.4 is someone else's too, but I think Cloudflare's is 1.1.1.1. Yeah, they got the best one, but that one is also <clears throat> weird. Uh, it, it responds differently than a lot of other DNS uh, resolvers yeah. on things. I forget what the situation was, but it's given me distrust. 
there's also the Yeah, I think you can also resolve against this address, but and I think that's the same uh, address in AWS as well. Is it the 169, 254, 169, yeah. 253, that one? Yeah. yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's there's some like for that one to work, I think there's some there's some like config thing you need to turn on in the VPC. I think that came from that came from like EC2 classic. I think that was where the oh, origin that of that been. thing was. That and I think been. you need yeah. you need to turn on like I think it's like enable there's like a thing that on the VPC configuration that's like enable DNS integration or something like that and you have to turn that on in order for that thing to work. Yeah, so this is still. Um, yeah, it still works. I said, yeah. but I'm saying that was like the origin of it. I think so. Yeah. But. So I guess I would try either of those and see what happens. Yeah. All right, Alex, point. Uh, just posted the thing I was talking about that you need to turn on DNS support for your VPC. Hmm. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Enable DNS support and enable DNS host names. Uh, yeah, I remember <laughs> that bit yeah. us one <laughs> and a long ongoing engagement. Yeah, that's usually what gets people. If it's not that, you know, and you get the right value from the dot two DNS server in your VPC, then just check your host file. Like, Maybe someone got in there and stuck in a silly value. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for your time today. We've run a little bit over, but we also got a late start. Um, if you haven't yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, you can find today's recording posted there in a few hours, as well as the back catalog of all of our past recordings. Great way to share the wealth with your team. If you haven't joined our Slack team yet, go to slack.cloudposse.com and uh, you can join us in the Office Hours channel there or uh, the Terraform or Atmos or Cloud Posse channels if you want to get a hold of us. We also have a podcast. It is a syndication of today's Office Hours and our past Office Hours. So if you want to listen to this on the bus or the train or however you get around, uh, check out podcast.cloudposse.com. Lastly, if you are interested in working with Cloud Posse and want to see if we can move the needle for you at your organization, go to cloudposse.com slash quiz, answer a few quick questions, and you can book a meeting with me directly. We'll go over your situation to see if we can help. Again, that's cloudposse.com slash quiz. Thanks, everyone. See you all next week. Same time, same place. Thanks, folks. Thank you.